Hello and welcome again to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before the news, as well as insight and analysis and all the debates you're talking about in the world of football. I'm Ian McGarry and joining me as always is Duncan Castles. We're going to be reflecting on a weekend of Premier League football and indeed some controversy as well as Manchester City drop three points at Norwich City. First though, Duncan, we're going to go to Arsenal who um, themselves surrendered a two-goal lead against Watford yesterday. Um, And just a bit of news, I guess. It's, 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 It's just a bit of subtle information, let's put it that way. And that is that um, the transfer window has learned that the spend in the summer transfer window by Arsenal, much kind of um, debated on the basis that uh, they claimed they had £50 million budget, which is very small for a top four, top six club. Uh, of course, they invested it well in the recruitment uh, of Nicola Pepe and Kieran Tierney, but they did it in instalments. So they're paying HP on the never-never. So the investment wasn't um, financially extravagant, more prudent than anything else. And um, speaking to a source close to the Arsenal dressing room, um, it has been pointed out that there are some concerns over the um, communication ability of Unai Emery in terms of tactical briefings and team meetings, um, even through his uh, assistant coaches, it seems um, there's been some confusion with regards to what he wants to get across to the players. Uh, Emery himself um, appears in some press conferences to get confused. His English is probably not as good as it would be expected to be after a year or more um, managing the Emirates club. And also, it has to be said, um, the results and stats, and this is another thing that we have been told, that the end-of-season report for last season, which obviously was his first season in charge, was not great. Arsenal um, had conceded more goals from winning positions, they conceded more penalties, and it was more um, by luck than design that they finished as high as they did. And therefore, a little bit of doubt, Duncan, in the Arsenal hierarchy, specifically with Stan Kroenke's son, Josh, who takes care, obviously, or oversees day-to-day running the football club. With regards to not the closest sacking, Emery, that is not what we're saying here. What we're saying, um, from what we've been told, is that um, they didn't want to invest a huge amount of money on the basis that, look, we have to suck it and see um, with this guy. Uh, He's got a lot of things right. He's got some things wrong. Um, and I think we saw uh, against Watford yesterday, Duncan, that defensively they couldn't have got it more wrong. I don't think it was it's defensively so much. I mean, that is certainly a problem with Arsenal and it's an obvious problem. Everyone knows that they are they have weaknesses in, in personnel and defence um, and, and these are long-standing weaknesses. And, you know, they're missing... Key players in, in those areas, such as Hector Bellerin, who they're waiting to come back from um, a long-term injury, and also um, Kieran Tierney, who, um, who they hope will be a key player at left-back and solve that um, area of the team for them. Um, you know, they did invest in a centre-back in the summer, but they invested in a, a centre-back for the future in um, William Saliba, so they, they put big money down for that transfer for an 18-year-old, but I've left him at Saint-Étienne. Um, quite a clever move in in some ways in that they, they've registered him in the Premier League squad uh, for this season uh, be- while putting him on loan, which allows him to be to start the process of becoming a homegrown player um, for, you know, it shows that they see him in the future as a as a central part of their squad and, and can have him as a homegrown player in their um, the Premier League and, and Champions League squads by working this way and signing them at that age. And, and I think that explains, also partially explains why they put so much money down for him um, when they couldn't put him immediately into the team uh, this summer and didn't plan to do so. So we know they're weak there from a personnel per- perspective and they, and they need to strengthen. But I think that the, 
the outstanding aspect of that um, draw at Watford, which could easily have turned into a defeat, was that they handed over a game that was under their control in the sense that they had a two-goal lead. Um, and you would expect a, a side of Arsenal's quality in the attacking areas to be able to weather the storm against Watford under a new manager and pick off another goal um, on the break in the second half. Um, but they actually gave Watford the foothold back into the game by insisting on playing the ball in their own penalty area directly to um, a centre-back with a direct pass straight through the middle of the penalty area, um, which got intercepted by a Watford player and turned into what is just about the easiest goal you can get. It's a shot you know, from 12 yards from a, a goalkeeper who's not ready for it. And that's a tactical decision. That's Unai Emery instructing his players to play from the back at all times, even when the opposition are 2-0 down and madly chasing the game and pressing hard, um, stick to that way of playing. And uh, that you have to criticise, I think, the coach for. There are times to be pragmatic in football. Um, this your mentality of playing the ball from the back, splitting your centre-backs and having someone drop in to the, the gap in the middle um, to collect a pass. It's very much Pep Guardiola football. Um, it is extremely fashionable. We see teams at, at a number of levels trying to copy it. But the message is it's risky. And if your personnel aren't as good as Pep Guardiola's personnel, you end up making mistakes, as Arsenal did. And, uh, and it cost them two points um, and almost cost them three points. So you can, you can understand why there are reservations about Emery um, because those are the kind of decisions that are in a manager's remit to make. Um, they're instructions which can be changed during a game and, and to circumstances. And it, when you dogmatically follow that path and it costs you points, that's on the manager's back. That's not on the player's back. That's that's a that's a tactical decision that's backfired and handed the opposition an easy goal at a crucial uh, juncture in the game, which resulted in losing two points and almost resulted in losing three points. Duncan, I think it was um, significant that Tom cleverly said in the aftermath of the game that uh, their players could smell that Arsenal were tentative and a little bit scared on the ball. And therefore, they never lost faith with regards to um, redeeming the game at any point. I think it's also uh, significant that this was a team in Arsenal who managed to salvage a 2-2 draw with Tottenham, but yet um, failed to convert a two-goal lead against a team in Watford who have not won in eight Premier League matches. And it just seemed to be... Um, I don't know, there's something systemic. It's like Arsenal are Jek and, Jekyll and Hyde team now. They can uh, flatter to deceive, but at the same time, they can take opposition defences apart, but then concede what are fairly you know, stupid and basic errors at the back, as we saw against Watford yesterday. Um, even though they brought in David Luiz um, late on, and he's you know, reverted to the sideshow Bob character that we've spoken about in the podcast many times, um, having gone to Arsenal. And Socrates as well does not look comfortable at any point with regards to the way that the team are being set up or the position he's being asked to play in terms of along that defensive line. And <laughs> these are basic things which Emery, a coach who has experience, should be able not just to remedy, but should be weeding out those errors. I think, yeah, Jekyll and Hyde's a good description. I've been impressed with quite a lot of what I've seen from Arsenal this season. I do think they're headed in the right direction. Um, I've seen good signs in Emery's setup of the team and, and his decision-making at times. And uh, I think the way he had the team set up to play at Liverpool was good. It was intelligent. And ironically, they were... They were happy to play the ball very rapidly from back to front in that game because they felt that was the best way uh, to get in at Liverpool. And uh, 
uh, beat Liverpool's press and uh, take advantage of uh, Nicola Pepe and uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang up front. And uh, you watch that game again, they made the chances to go ahead in that match. The tactical plan did work. If uh, the ball had gone in the net off those early opportunities, they had a chance of getting a result from Liverpool, which is no easy task these days. Um, They had that very impressive comeback against Tottenham as well. There's no question they've got a very good attack, very good attacking personnel. They're overloaded in in attack, in fact. Um, You know, Obama Young's had a fantastic uh, run uh, of of scoring. They've got Lacazette, who steps up when when it's required, and uh, Pepe, who is creating chances and and looking, um, I think, quite impressive for the early stages of his, uh, his Premier League career. Um, they've ad- added Danny Sabalas, who has been um, good in parts uh, for them. There, there is lots of plus signs for them, but then they make mistakes, uh, unnecessary mistakes in certain situations. And, and it's a reflection of the imbalance in the squad for sure. But I think that, that what you're mentioning about Unai Emery and um, uh, people within this camp having difficulties with his ability to communicate is an important and, um, you know, it's not, not a difficult thing to comprehend when you, you listen to Emery post-match. Um, his English is not where you would expect it to be, having been a manager in the Premier League for over a year now. He does struggle um, to get ideas across. You see that at times he, under, he, he fails to understand the question that's being placed of him. Now, that's a post-match scenario where these things can be quite formulaic and um, managers do go into those uh, press conferences and post-match interviews with their ideas of what they want to communicate prepared. So you can kind of work out what you want to say in in a foreign language and have it ready for those um, questions that are are placed to you. Um, But if you're giving detailed tactical instruction and Emery does have a reputation uh, from his time in Spain, from his time in France of being a manager who is um, tactically um, involved and and likes to finesse things from a tactical perspective. If you're giving those instructions in a foreign language and you don't have the capacity to communicate them as well as you could in um, your own language or a language you're more comfortable with, then that is going to be um, a detriment as a manager and a detriment to the players. And what's for sure is that this is a very important season for Arsenal. Um, they they banked a lot on getting back to the top level. That's the message that's come coherently from the, the new um, executive tier at Arsenal is that they want to be back as a club competing for the Premier League title and competing uh, eventually for the Champions League title. And the first stage in doing that is to get back into the Champions League to secure the revenue that that, that, that they've been missing for some time now and is, is starting to hurt them. So there is, I think, a significant pressure there on Emery to achieve top four. And, you know, it's, it would not, it's not unexpected that the executive are looking at the competition in this season's Premier League and saying, we should be able to get top four because Manchester United are not in a great state. Um, Chelsea playing with a transfer ban and uh, very much investing in their youth. Um, there is a clear opportunity to take that fourth place, get the revenue back. Um, and I, I think that's that's where the expectation is. And that's, uh, that's where Emery will have to um, focus and ensure he does achieve that aim. Otherwise, I think the, the, what question marks, small question marks there are at this stage will grow into larger question marks if he, if he fails to achieve that. Absolutely the case, Duncan. Um, and from what was, you can't say it was a, a shock result, um, what for versus Arsenal, but you can say that um, events at Carrow Road uh, last weekend where Norwich City overcame the champions, Manchester City. Uh, they lost their first Premier League game 
in 25, uh, since January, I believe, uh, when they lost to Newcastle United, uh, in quite um, strange but also spectacular fashion in terms of the way they conceded goals. Uh, it was very uh, a very unfamiliar Pep Guardiola side who um, gave away goals, it looked like, for free almost, with regards to their defensive central pairing of Nicola Otamendi and John Stones, who have played only four times together in Pep Guardiola's time at the club. Uh, I personally watched the game um, in its entirety. I was very impressed with Norwich's high, uh, high press and the way they dealt with City's high press. They didn't falter in possession when they were playing out from the back. They believed in themselves and uh, ultimately that's how they managed to secure that victory. But Duncan, what I'm interested in um, from your point of view, uh, I think, is um, the post-match interview that Pep Guardiola gave in which um, he claimed to be congratulating Norwich City on their um, victory but at the same time defending players who I think if anyone was watching, including Manchester City fans, would say it was indefensible in terms of the mistakes that both Otamendi and Stones made uh, for, to concede goals. I'm just going to, for our listeners, read out those quotes and, um, and then get your point of view, if that's OK. So Guardiola said, How many games have John and Nico played in three seasons? How many games have they played with Kyle Walker? Pa, a lot. Also, Laporte made a mistake in the quarterfinal of the Champions League against Tottenham when he never made a mistake before. We have to see what the problems are. If the players want to take a step for the club, for themselves, we're going to solve it. If today you believe I have doubts in my team because we lost a game, they give me all the prestige I have in England. In the first season, it was fraud Guardiola. Fraudiola. Okay. And how was it not possible to play this way because you have too many tackles. It was these players who gave me the prestige, and I have to talk all around the world about how good a manager I am. How good a manager is he when he picks two players who make mistakes like that, Duncan? <laughs> Look, there's all kinds of arguments about what happened in this game, um, and one of the interesting points that's been made is... Um, Yes, Otamendi and Stones and Kyle Walker were all um, culpable in the defensive errors that cost them the match. And um, it's clear that Manchester City wanted to recruit a centre-back in the summer and that didn't happen. So there's this argument that um, that Guardiola has been left short at centre-back. But as people pointed out, the two centre-backs he played um, cost more than Norwich City's entire squad in terms of transfer fees. So I think I think to answer your question, this is the test of how good a manager he is. Um, it's whether he can come up with solutions with the squad he has to keep them competitive in the Premier League and um, to try and do what he's completely failed to do during his time as Manchester City manager and, and get to the, the end stages of the Champions League and win the, the title that Abu Dhabi prize above all others, which is the, the first European Cup for Manchester City um, and the first European Cup for a Gulf state. Because remember, this is a head-to-head battle between Qatar and Abu Dhabi to get to win the Champions League with the massive spending that the, the two clubs have put in place so far. I think Guardiola defending his players during the press conference is a pretty standard strategy and a sensible strategy. I'm sure he wasn't defending them uh, in the dressing room and he won't be defending them on the training ground this week. Um, Those players will have been reprimanded for the errors they made, basic errors they made, but in public he's not going to kill them, uh, which is sensible because um, he doesn't, it it will be until January January at the earliest before he can buy a new centre-back and go down that line and, and solve with money Again, a problem. He's got a lot of decisions to make um, because he hasn't, it's no secret, he hasn't been happy with John Stones for a long time. John Stones was left out of the team last season uh, because Guardiola was unhappy with his focus on the field and his his behaviour off the field. Same 
or a similar story with Cal Walker. Cal Walker's managed to get himself back in the side. Otamendi um, was an important player for them last season, but he was a you know subsidiary player. And Pomerico Port had established themselves as left-sided centre-back, the most reliable or the, the key element in that defence. Uh, Vincent Company finally got his fitness to a level where he could play regularly, and that was the partnership. That, that won them the title um, and the partnership that Guardiola would like to have continued with. Remember, company decided off his own back that he was not going to extend his contract to make an offer to remain at Manchester City because he had that opportunity to go and be player manager at Anderlecht. So this is difficult for Guardiola because he has to decide, do I keep playing Stones Otamendi um, or do I move Fernandinho into one of those positions, probably with with Otamendi's left-sided centre-back. He's been training Fernandinho for that, and I think it's inevitable that that will happen at some point this season. But when he was last asked about it, he said that Fernandinho hadn't had enough coaching yet and he wasn't ready to put him in there. Another option would be to play Kyle Walker as a centre-back, but um, can he afford to do that when Walker isn't particularly accustomed to playing centre-back in a four. And Walker was directly responsible for um, the key second goal on on Saturday, where he, at the same time as Stone was, Stones was trying to play an, a Norwich player offside by stepping up into the Norwich half, um, Carl Walker was, was running, sprinting back beyond his man to play everyone onside and, uh, and create a two-on-one for Norwich, which turned into... Because of Pukki's uh, very uh, good vision and uh, unselfishness, turned into an easy chance for a second goal. Then you have Otamendi making two mistakes in the space of 60 seconds: one to give the ball away, which um, which Norwich didn't convert into a goal, um, and then to be caught in possession, which did turn into a goal. So there, there's so much to solve there, and doesn't really have the personnel he would like to have to solve it. Now, in the background to this is, is some interesting information in that obviously they wanted a centre-back in the summer. Guardiola's on record as saying he would have bought a centre-back if the club had allowed him to. There wasn't the money to do it. They had the opportunity to sell Otamendi and Otamendi would have been happy to leave the club. AS Monaco wanted to sign Otamendi. They were negotiating with Manchester City to do that deal. Manchester City basically priced themselves out of that move by asking for €30 million as a transfer fee for Otamendi, which Monaco understandably refused to pay, bear in mind that they would have to take on his high wages that he has at City. So it was unrealistic. City's plan was to use that €30 million to, towards the price of a new centre-back. So they did. They were trying to upgrade, but they needed the money much in the same way as they did with Jean Cancelo. Uh, they wanted the money from Danilo to subsidise the Cancelo transfer fee, and they tried to set up that similar situation. problem was they asked too much for Otamendi. Everything fell through. They end up with the situation they're in now. So this is kind of self-imposed in it, in the sense that City um, got greedy in the transfer market. Also, you could say it's to do with external pressures. They're under this FFP investigation. So um, a reluctance to, to spend um, too much, although they spent high, they spent as high as any other Premier League team in terms of gross spend, but to go and be the top spenders, absolute clear top spenders again, they didn't want to do that, which is why they were trying to structure these deals, gaining money off automatic. Now they have a big problem, and, it, and for me it's not just a defensive problem. If you Realistically, if you look at the squad compared to last season, they're now down two starting centre-backs, Company and Laporte, and Leroy Zani. And as we've said in this podcast many times, Zani is the guy who in situations like they had against Norwich when they're behind two goals and they've got a break through a packed defence, he was the player who provides the pace to create opportunities which have turned those games around in the past for them. They don't have him um, and they don't have Laporte for at least half this season. 
and that is a lot of key players down on the squad from last year and um, and that's where we get the challenge for to see how good a manager Pep Guardiola is when he when he, those key players are taken out of what is the most expensive squad in the history of the game what's well, a very deep squad can he come up with solutions uh, to deliver the owner's uh, targets As I said before, Norwich had several key players out injured. Manchester City had £260 million worth of talent on the bench uh, against Norwich City, but not a central defender among them that could take or indeed improve what was on the field. And instead, what apparently it just seemed weird and it was schoolboy-like, quite frankly, uh, Otamendi being caught in possession in that way. He then appealed to Ederson uh, as if to say, well, you should have given me a shout, etc., etc., but it was too late. The goal was scored and effectively the game was over. And for a team, as you said, Duncan, the most expensive squad ever assembled in the history of football, to be shot at such a vital position as centre-back. I mean, you can imagine in some you know, situations where, uh, like Liverpool were this season, you're struggling for a backup goalkeeper because uh, your first-choice goalkeeper is out and you've overextended yourself in terms of um, loaning and selling your backups. But you do not expect a team like Manchester City to be caught like this. And I think it is going to be very intriguing in terms of... I mean, Guardiola admitted it himself. These guys haven't played together very much. Okay, four starts, that's now their fifth. Is he able now to meet that challenge and coach those two players into becoming uh, the kind of central defensive partnership that Manchester City need? Because it's not just Premier League, it's Champions League as well um, this week, as we know. And Manchester City need to be able to give confidence to the rest of their very talented team and squad that they can defend or at least keep a clean sheet at the back in order the guys who do all the work from the middle to final third um, and and getting goals that will win the matches, uh, that their work is being defended properly at the back. And clearly, on the evidence of the game against Norwich City, that's not the case. And this is going to be a very interesting period, I think, Duncan, for Manchester City with regards to how this plays out, but also as you've um, alluded to, can Guardiola now produce Guardiola, the genius coach, and actually solve this problem, whether it's Fernandinho, possibly even Rodri or Gundogan, who go back into centre defence, or whether he keeps faith in Otamendi and Stones and says, OK, you guys are going to have to up your game and improve a hell of a lot in order for us to achieve what we want to achieve this season... Uh, which means a, a massive improvement from what we saw at the weekend. Well, look, Norwich, we've got to credit Norwich with the way they played in that team. Absolutely, I agree. Tactical, um, Daniel Farke did a, a great job. Um, it, they did some unusual things in the way they, they pressed Manchester City and took advantage of the defenders, but essentially you're looking at a very carefully organised defence and the, I think the tweak with Norwich City was they were prepared to pass the ball out of defence, so they, they they set their attacking players in positions that they could turn um, when when they got control of the ball in defensive areas, quick passes to midfielders or forwards to turn those into breaks, and they were confident in their ability to hit their own players. But from the Manchester City side, it's all mistakes. So we see them concede. Um, a goal, the first goal at a set piece, near post run, um, beating their zonal marking. Uh, we've seen this time and time again with with City. You know, you heard Guardiola after they won the title about how uh, when the high ball goes into the box, into a box at set pieces, what he does is he prays. Um, and they, they, I think, uh, I think I saw a stat last week that they they had the highest um, concession rate, um, the highest percentage of goals coming from. 
opposition set pieces of any team in the Premier League last season. So that's a clear weak point. So the set pieces is a weakness. Then the second goal is just basic, uh, basic defend, defensive mistakes to, to allow the players the opportunity to score. And the third is even worse because they're handing possession of the ball to Norwich twice in a row in the space of a minute in their own half. So the, the positive thing, I guess, for, for Guardiola is two of those three goals he can eliminate. Um, they are, you know, they're individual errors and decision making issues, which, which should be fixable with the quality and cost players he's got. The set piece stuff he doesn't seem to be able to come up with answers for. I hasn't seemed to be able to come up with answers for, and he's lost Laporte, so he's lost one of his, his tallest defenders. If he brings Fernandinho in, that's going to be a, a relatively small player in at centre back, so that'll, that'll cause an issue. For him. Um, well, the but, first goal, Duncan, was, um, I mean, City were defending zonally and McCune was allowed to run 10 metres unchallenged to meet the ball. And yeah. uh, as I've said often before, I've never seen the zone score a goal. So why are you, why are you zonally marking or <laughs> zonally defending, I should say, because it doesn't work. And uh, that was proof of it again in that first goal. Yeah, and it's a repeat problem for City, but they've been able to overcome it in the past because their quality of possession, the quality of attacking play is so good. Zani missing is, a, is definitely a, a handicap for them. Um, and it's going to be a difficult one. I, I, they, I don't see they have a solution for that. There's not a similar player to Zani in their squad who can come and, and provide that injection of base in tight spaces that creates so many chances for them. But really, in normal circumstances, you'd have expected them when they got to 2-1 to get that game back to a draw or a victory. And the reason they didn't was because Otamendi handed Norwich a free goal to make it 3-1 and gave, and gave them that cushion which allowed them to get to the end of the game. But I think in, in the context of the title race, and this is the, you know, it seems bizarre because we're only five games into the season, but that five points advantage that they've already handed over and you have to say that two of those points were very unfortunate because the Tottenham game they should have had a win but the, the Norwich game absolutely is on their own back that five point advantage to me given the circumstances given the weaknesses those three key players that Guardiola is missing I think it's now Liverpool's title to lose if they have their advantage. Oh, big statement there from Duncan Castles. You heard it here first. It's Liverpool's title to lose. Well, to be fair, Duncan, you're right. It's in the basically they win every game to the end of the season. They win the title by five points. So you're right <laughs> in that sense. Uh, I don't think we expect them to do that, but they were very impressive, uh, having got a goal down against Newcastle last weekend. Um, I get the feeling that this was a kind of game um, last season that. City would have come back and won. And you've got to look at as well the um, chances that they had in added time as well as towards the end of the normal time when last season one of those shots headers might have gone in and they might have got, you know, something from the game, if not a win. But Liverpool, they seem, you know, they rotated Duncan at the weekend. They took into account the international break. And okay, they were at Anfield at home to Newcastle, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, they were still very impressive, I think, in terms of the way that they dealt with going a goal down and uh, game management, which City were guilty of not having. Yeah. Okay. Look, the thing is, Liverpool can now afford to lose one of their head-to-head -head games against City and still win the title. It's it's in their domain. They are the team who are. Um, getting through these difficult circumstances early in the season with wins. Um, you know, that Newcastle going a goal down to Newcastle, uh, we're a team who know how to defend. It's not an ideal scenario, but they had it sorted by half-time. Um, they have been in difficulties at Southampton this season um, and managed to get through it, albeit thanks to Danny Ings um, missing a, a, an open goal right at the end of the game. They were at difficulties against Arsenal, but 
came away with a with a solid win. Um, they com- they comfortably won away at Burnley, which is no um, easy fixture. They they look um, they look a team full of confidence and a team with lots of solutions. Uh, I think their ability, in contrast to Manchester City, their ability to score from set pieces has added uh, another dimension to the, the team and allowed them to turn games that in previous seasons they were drawing uh, into wins. Um, and this is, you know, it, it is that five points in the context of the current Premier League is a very significant advantage. Um, the question you have is, knowing that it's theirs to win, can they sustain the, that mental pressure of knowing it's theirs to win? Because remember last season, we thought they'd won the title. The general consensus was they got a big enough lead to win the title. And when they got to that position where it looked like they had a big enough lead to go and win the title, um, that's when they started to fold. And that's when they allowed Manchester City back into the hunt and uh, and handed uh, the lead back to them. Um, so let's see what they do now. But this is the... I, I haven't seen any circumstances like this as 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 um, propitious for Liverpool mentally, Duncan. And I think that is the key. Uh, we know they've got the quality in terms of talent of their squad and their first eleven players, and indeed, as we saw at the weekend, um, an ability to rotate players when necessary, but still win football matches. Um, Mentally, they seem to have toughened from last season's disappointment of losing the title uh, to Manchester City by such a small margin. Uh, and also, that group of players clearly is benefiting from the fact that they proved themselves as not being bottlers because they won the Champions League. Um, so I think this season is going to be, from what we've seen already and from what I think we can expect to see going forward, much more competitive and much more um, enervating um, as regarding the title race. Yeah, and they do, I guess that this has come at an interesting time for them because the game's coming up this week. You've got Napoli away, um, which is no easy fixture in the Champions League, uh, followed by Chelsea away, um, which I would expect them to win. They're definitely the better team. Uh, than Chelsea, uh, but uh, you know you'd, you'd rather you'd rather be playing one of the lesser clubs in the Premier League at home in those circumstances where you could just roll over another easy three 0 victory and and uh, and leave leave the focus on Manchester City's troubles uh, rather than have that that challenge of playing one of the stronger sides at the weekend. That's a very good point and one which Liverpool need to make if indeed they are to go on and win the Premier League title this season, and that is to cope with the dual um, challenges of Champions League football and, as you say, Napoli, a very good side, especially at home, uh, and then playing uh, what is clearly a, a work in progress, if you like, under Frank Lampard at Chelsea. But it's one of those um, weeks where, I guess, champions, you know, are kind of, you look at them and think, mm, OK, if they succeed in both ter- both games then you have to look at them as much stronger than they possibly were last season uh, in terms of being able to cope with the uh, demands uh, in those circumstances. And I think an interesting contrast with last season in that Napoli away in the Champions League was probably one of the worst um, Mm. performances of that campaign that they went and tried to play for a draw and uh, and lost the game. And and we're not even competitive in that match. So um, intriguing to see how he approaches that because it's this is a group you'd expect him to get through and playing for a draw at Napoli would be actually quite a sensible strategy in, in normal circumstances. But um, interesting to see if there's any kind of hangover from last season, whether they choose a different <coughs> approach because well, I remember- of last time around. I do remember my uh, youngest son um, giving his uh, critique of that game and saying it was a Jurgen Plop. So, um, uh, well done there, Finn, <laughs> in terms of uh, your analytics. Speaking of challenges and demands, Duncan, we have, oh, exhaustively 
reported the David De Gea contract situation with Manchester United on the Transfer Window podcast, as all our listeners will know. Now, you have written um, extensively over the last three or four days, both for the Daily Record and the Sunday Times, with regards to the progress and indeed inevitability. It seems that De Gea will sign uh, a new deal with Manchester United. Can you just update us, please, on the things that you've written about and also what you know since? Yeah, so the deal is um, it's a four-year contract with a, a, that classic Manchester United option for a fifth year. It makes De Gea the best-paid player, not just at Old Trafford, but in the Premier League, um, the best-paid goalkeeper in the history of the game. Uh, pay rise to a basic salary of £13.5 million pounds, um, after tax per season. Um, he it's essentially the same terms as Pogba. However, as part of the negotiation, De Gea, I'm told, has um, got Manchester United to remove the Champions League um, clause in his contract for at least the initial first season. So um, instead of having the mandatory 25% deduction to salary that every other player at United has, should they fail to qualify for the Champions League, De Gea will be paid the full sum for the season, which therefore takes him above Pogba as the best-paid player in the club and in the Premier League. Um, it's a massive commitment by Manchester United. Um, they've essentially acceded to demands that um, the executive vice chairman, Edward Wood, said he would not pay, would not make him um, the best-paid player at the club. It's helped that Alexis Sanchez has moved out, um, so that salary is no longer fully on United's books. But they have um, they've given De Gea what he wanted to stay. Interesting background is that um, Paris Saint-Germain had made an offer to De Gea um, at the end of last season and were in the process of negotiating, trying to uh, agree a transfer fee with Manchester United for De Gea. And at that stage, United were looking at alternatives, which we reported um, extensively in the podcast. They made an offer to Ajax for Andre Onana, their goalkeeper, um, looked at um, Jasper Sillison at Barcelona, uh, Mike Mignon at uh, Leo, or other players that were looking at as replacements. So the consideration was that they might sell him to Paris Saint-Germain if the money was right. Um, Paris Saint-Germain's offer to De Gea was better, um, I'm told, than the, the figure he um, ultimately achieved at, at Manchester United. However, uh, Paris Saint-Germain changed their stance when um, they changed sporting director. So um, Antero Enrique... Um, Portuguese sporting director left Paris Saint-Germain, was replaced by Leonardo, and Leonardo called a halt to um, those discussions with De Gea and discussions with Manchester United um, and went and pursued um, other goalkeepers instead, um, including Thibaut Courtois at uh, Real Madrid, interestingly, eventually signing Keylor Navas as um, their new starting goalkeeper in four-year contract right at the end of the transfer window. Basically, that option was removed for De Gea. Um, I'm told he did not have any other um, substantial offers from clubs, so Juventus looked at it um, but decided against. Um, he was offered uh, two other Premier League clubs. All of those Premier League clubs uh, said, no, we can't do it on the financial terms that are required, which I think kind of underlines... Um, just what a big investment Manchester United have made in De Gea um, and a big decision that Ed Woodward has made to, to give him this scale of contract um, after a season in which his performances have declined. Um, and now we will see um, whether this settles the player um, who was absolutely ready to leave, um, I'm told, uh, not... Uh, as you know, his, uh, his girlfriend is Spanish and, and uh, based in Madrid and uh, not 
a massive fan of Manchester and that was an element in his thinking. Also, of course, Manchester United status in the game, um, lack of Champions League football, inability in recent years to compete for titles, etc. Um, now we see if the player goes back to, to being what he has been for most of his Premier League career, the best goalkeeper in the Premier League, um, for part of that time, probably the best goalkeeper in the world, um, five times Premier League uh, top goalkeeper in the last seven seasons. And I think a good sign for Manchester United fans was the first five minutes of the, the game against Leicester City um, when um, Harry Maguire decided he was going to leave a, a direct uh, ball down the middle of the park, um, not put his head on it, and it broke through to James Madison, who put a very, very good um, close-range shot back across to the opposite post that De Gea produced one of his trademark um, saves with his feet to keep out. Um, and I think I think big contribution to a, a big win for Manchester United because if, you, if that ball goes in the net, it's a different story and you're then trying to score against the Leicester side who have been good defensively and who like to play in the counter-attack. Instead, um, United get a, a relatively soft penalty four minutes later and the, and the game flips in its head and that United can sit back and, and play on the counter-attack and, and, uh, and stop Leicester from scoring. So that's the reward that um, Woodward will be looking for to justify this decision um, to invest so much in, in keeping De Gea at the club. But he's, he's got um, you know, three parts, I think, from Woodward's perspective. He's got four parts of that defence in place. Luke Shaw, Harry Maguire, Juan Bissaka and, uh, and De Gea now. And uh, we'll see how they go through the season and, and, go, and moving forwards. So what you're saying, Duncan, is man gets massive pay-rise for doing badly at his job. Well, the timing of it, the timing <laughs> of it, I'm just joking. The timing of it is such that he's uh, he has got a massive pay-rise after his poorest, uh, not season, but poorest sequence. Of no, it's true. I think Manchester fans themselves would would admit that. Um, the last three or four months of last season was not a good time for David De Gea. But we know what he's capable of. And the fact that, you know, he's been effectively Manchester United's best, best player um, in, what, five or six times in the last eight, seven seasons says much about um, his contribution to the team. And um, as a lot of you know, I spent a lot of time in my tabloids during my journalistic career. And so headlines always come into my mind when um, Duncan's speaking and uh, I was thinking no discount on De Gea uh, was one of my headlines if they were going to be selling them. But it reminded me also of probably one of the best headlines I ever, ever saw, which was when John Budgie Burridge uh, was having a great time at Hibs and the Edinburgh Evening News, Duncan, I'm sure you're familiar with that particular publication. Um, Alex Smith was the uh, manager at the time and their headline was when there was interest from clubs in England, Smith, colon, budgie won't go cheap. <laughs> just, just, just throwing that in there for your, for your entertainment. That's all. That's all. Uh, as we do, we do try to entertain you as well as give you information uh, and analysis as well. It being Monday's uh, edition of the Transfer Window podcast, we will do heroes and villains. I'm delighted to say that um, Dr. Evil himself has decided to go for a hero this week. Normally, up's the villain, but um, please, Duncan, tell us who your hero is from last few days in football. Um, there are a few candidates, but I've decided to give it to Harry Maguire um, for his achievement in uh, getting resounding man of the match um, accolades um, off the back of a, a performance in which, as I've just explained, the uh, a big centre-back who's good in the air decides to miss a high ball straight down the middle of the, the, the pitch in the first five minutes and almost um, concedes or allows the team to concede another goal in key circumstances. Um, I've now seen him described as a new Rio Ferdinand and the heir to Nemanja Vidic. Um, this, in the two games, he has 
been involved in clean sheets for Manchester United. And remember, we've also got that, that penalty he gave away for England um, on international duty, thrown in amongst these errors so far this season. Um, I'm just waiting for him to, uh, to score a goal in one of these games because I think the, uh, the thousand-word pie-ins to his magnificence, which I've, I've seen included um, uh, crediting how good he was in the warm-up, against Leicester City last weekend, which is not what you usually see in um, reports on, on footballers' achievements. I think they'll turn into he's the, the next George Best, David Beckham, um, Rio Ferdinand and Nemanja Vidic combined before too long if he starts scoring goals as well as uh, having clean sheets for Manchester United. So let's get this right. He's your hero because he's managed to gain these accolades um, for his performance, despite the fact he didn't play very well. Yeah, I think an average performance when you when you're getting eight nines out of tens and and being you know uh, put on a on the pedestal with the best two Manchester United defenders of the last decade, um, that's that's quite an achievement, isn't it? Don't you agree? I agree. I think George Best might be going too far, but you know, let's wait and see how that one works out. You know, we may all be delivering a donkey to his door in the um, figure of George Best, if that's how it works out. Um, so I'm going to give you a villain. Um, as again, I said, I'm not very used to this because Duncan normally likes to um, hoard these ones for himself. But I'm going to go for Nicholas Otamendi. Um, I never tire of this anecdote. That's why I'm giving it more than anything else. After the way that he defended against Norwich City, I'm going to say he gets the Villain of the Week award for writing checks. His tattoos cannot cash. Um, have a look at his tattoos online. You know what I'm talking about. They're very expensive and probably um, do not indeed equate to the performances that he is producing, certainly at Carroll Road. We thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. Um, and as always, we're open to um, having a further debate with you. Um, at Transfer Podcast is the Twitter handle for the official account. And for Duncan and I, you can get us at Duncan Castles at Garbo SJ. And we will be happy to answer questions and engage, as always. And of course, if you liked what you heard, please log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review. That helps us to widen the community and indeed expand the community and our podcast, which we know you all love. Um, this is just Monday, so you guys are in for a treat. Two more to go, Wednesday and Friday. But until Wednesday, we will see you through the transfer window. Until then, thanks for listening. Hey.